So in last week's episode, I told the story of how I tried to address one of my former players' lack of effort and poor attitude in practice by making not just him, but the whole team run and yelling at that player and publicly criticizing him all in an effort to get him to change his behavior, to work harder and have a better attitude. Uh, But the truth is he didn't, he didn't change. Now, hopefully at the end of last week's episode, you could see that the way that I handled that situation through punishment and shaming and blaming, that, that wasn't the best way to motivate that player, any player, or really any person. But there's more to the story. So in that moment, punishment wasn't effective. Like no matter how much I ran the team, I shamed him, screamed, he would not change his behavior. So eventually what happens? I just moved on with practice. I pretended that he actually made Uh, the sprint in time so the whole team wouldn't have to run again. And we just went through the rest of practice as if nothing happened. Um, After that, I I complained about him to my staff uh, afterwards and just how I couldn't stand his attitude. I didn't enjoy coaching him. I even pulled him aside and gave him a lecture about how he needed to improve his attitude. But then what did I do? I played him the next day. He started the next game and he played the majority of that game because, well, That was one of our biggest games this season, and I believe we needed him out there to win. See, permissiveness, it's not just something that has a problem with quote-unquote soft coaches. Yes, even the hard, quote-unquote tough coaches who use a lot of punishment, oh, they struggle with permissiveness as well. And that's what we're gonna talk about today on the Coaching Culture Podcast in our fourth episode on discipline. So thanks for listening in. I'm JP Nurbin. I'm joined by my co-host, Nate Sanderson. This podcast is just one of the many ways that we try to support coaches to grow as leaders and to build their culture. We also provide a host of free resources, online courses, and a mentorship program, which you can learn a little bit more about at thriveonchallenge.com. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter to get the coaching notes PDF for this episode. JP, last week on the podcast, we followed up our conversation with Dr. Jane Nelson, talking about discipline, particularly from the angle of looking at the use of punishment to get our players to comply to our standards or to get the behaviors that we want in practices or games. This week, we want to look at a different perspective of discipline, and that is talking a little bit about permissiveness. It's the other end of the spectrum. Rather than jumping all over a player when they do something wrong, how much latitude and freedom do we give players before we step in to enforce our standards. And as you and I were talking a little bit off air about this, you know, I was reminded of the last dance and thinking about the way that Phil Jackson interacted with his team. And granted, he's working with professional athletes. I'm not at the high school level, obviously. But I think back to some of the antics of Dennis Rodman, you know, and Phil was kind of labeled as the guy, like the only coach who could handle Dennis Rodman and get the most out of him. And one of the ways that he did that was really to take what we would describe as a permissive approach. In other words, he allowed him to do really whatever he wanted to do off the court. He allowed him to be late to practice. He allowed him to run off to Las Vegas and take a vacation because he felt like he needed a vacation in the middle of the season. He might not have done that with every player, 
But that approach was lauded as exactly what Dennis Rodman needed to get the most out of Dennis Rodman for the Chicago Bulls. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example of permissiveness, of permitting your players to do whatever they want. But JP, you've got a bit of a laundry list here of ways that you see permissiveness creeping into practices and cultures that maybe isn't always the most productive. So I think it's really important to note that as coaches, we don't fall into just one trap or the other, the punishment trap or the permissiveness trap. We can literally fluctuate within moments between the two. And so one of the most common ways I see coaches be permissive is that they make threats, but they don't follow through on it with them. So they say, hey, you've got to work hard here. You've got to have a great attitude or you're not going to play. But come Friday night, they're on the field and they're still getting carries, right? They're still out there playing. I mean, I'm, I'm even guilty of this as a coach myself. There's been times where I've pulled a player from a game because their behavior is unacceptable. They're not working hard on the defensive side of the floor. But when it comes down to it, our team starts to struggle because we're missing their scoring or their talent out there. What happens? I put them back into the game. Once again, that's permissiveness. Now, the other big area I see permissiveness creep in is when we observe unacceptable behaviors, behaviors that we know that are below the line or they're harmful or detrimental to the program. Some coaches have a tendency to try to beg or kind of positively encourage their players to do the right thing, but they still tolerate it and allow it to happen. I mean, even just last season with my own team, I remember leaving practice and reflecting on, man, I really let them off the hook at certain times. Their effort was totally unacceptable. They weren't competing. And sometimes that's because I was making excuses for them. And probably one of the most common things that we can fall into as coaches, though, is whether we ignore it, whether we beg or plead or we make idle threats, at the end of the day, we tolerate things, we allow our players to behave in a certain way or give unacceptable effort, and then we just complain about them to our fellow coaches after practice instead of actually stepping in and addressing the behavior. JP, I think when you describe what permissiveness actually looks like, a lot of us can relate to being in that place, whether it's with our students or our athletes or even our own kids at home, where you know there's a moment of of misbehavior, as an example, and we're presented with that, you know, instant decision of do I confront it? Do I take it head on? Am I going to tolerate this thing or am I going to lay down the law? And there are many, many times where it's just easier sometimes to let it slide. And I think the question becomes, first of all, why is it that we are tempted sometimes to let things slide sometimes too far before we try to reel things back in? And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, one, it just takes a lot of energy. You know, if you're in the middle of a practice and you have a player that's not giving a great effort or they're not meeting the standard of focus or attention, whatever it might be, I'm thinking I don't want to necessarily stop practice to address this thing because we have all these things we have to do to get ready for our next opponent. You know, is it necessary for everybody to stop what they're doing in order to address the behavior of one person? Um, Have I adequately taught what the expectations are? So can I really hold them accountable to something that maybe I haven't even communicated very well? You know, all of these kind of thoughts are swirling in my head as I'm trying to decide, do we pause, do we stop, or do we let it slide? 
Um, and I think there's lots of other reasons, you know, that sometimes coaches will be afraid that if they continually rein things in or they continually confront behavior, that they might lose the, the trust or the respect or the relationship that they that they have with their players. And that can, you know, sometimes be a, a real fear as well. As you're talking, Nate, I can totally relate to so many of those thoughts swirling in my head where I'm just so unsure sure, uh, of how hard I can push, you know, how hard I can push my players uh, and how much, how demanding I can be when it comes to their effort and just their attitude. And I think so often as transformational coaches, we want to meet them where they, where they are and be understanding. But there's a point where, you know, we do start to cross into making excuses for them. I think the other thing is, Instead of confronting it, we just try to use positive reinforcement. And we're like, okay, hey, I'm just going to focus on you know, the good things that are happening. And I'm not going to focus on kind of the negative behaviors. But if I was honest for myself, I think probably the number one reason I chose to not confront players or certain behaviors was uncertainty. Like you just don't know how players are going to respond. And if you knew that every time, I think it'd be a lot easier to step in and you know, hold those players accountable. I think that's a great point, JP, because we don't always know how our players are going to respond, either individually or collectively, or how their parents are going to respond if the player goes home and complains at the dinner table. I think if we were being really honest with ourselves at the end of the day, when it comes to what do we allow, there's always this fear of it impacting our performance. If I have to hold JP accountable because of his effort or his, his, you know, late to practice or whatever it might be, and it's going to affect his playing time and he's our best player, there are many coaches, and I, I totally understand this line of thought that will say, well, is it fair to me to punish the whole team by sitting JP out on Friday night when we know we can't be as competitive without him in the lineup? And so we may even justify in that way allowing maybe more undesirable behaviors than, than we might be comfortable with or we might want to. And not only that, I think there are some situations where you might wonder how much backing am I going to get from my administration if I do hold a team accountable or if I do hold a particular player accountable to a standard or to a team rule. And I think when you combine some of these factors, you know, if my team doesn't respond well, and they do an end around to the administration, the players aren't happy. And all of a sudden, maybe I'm not on real solid footing with my job. Or maybe the other side of that is I hold players accountable. Some of our best players aren't playing in our rivalry games or big games during the year. And it costs us. We lose games because of it. And now all of a sudden, my job might not be on sure footing because of our performance. So there's a lot of reasons why we might be more permissive. We might allow more than maybe what we would say in a job interview when we actually are in practice or we're actually out on the floor coaching. I think another factor that makes this even more complicated, JP, is that in the coaching world, there's this pressure. You hear these phrases like, you get what you tolerate. You know, when you walk into somebody's gym and you watch them practice and you say, oh, these guys have bad body language or they're not working as hard as you know, maybe they should be, that's a reflection, or at least it feels like a reflection of the coach. You know, you hear someone like Mike Leach in his book, he's got this phrase that's put up on the wall in their coaching room that says, if you're not coaching it, you are allowing it to happen. Like it's your fault that these behaviors are happening if you're not confronting them. So uh, this begs the question then, is there a place for permissiveness or do we have to confront every negative behavior or misbehavior in our practice as soon as it happens. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I remember so often at the start of a season or even the start of a new school year as a teacher, 
I felt like I had to send a strong message from day one of the things that we wouldn't tolerate here. You know, that was just really, really important that you set the tone early on. At the end of the day, though, as the season goes on, we get tired of having to hold them accountable and it doesn't work. But back to your, you know, your point, Nate, of like, hey, when do we allow them to experience natural consequences? When, you know, when is there a case for permissiveness? And I, I would say, first off, there's a difference between permissiveness and allowing them to experience natural consequences and then walking with them and exploring those. And so the reality is we can't confront every single unacceptable behavior in our program. It's just not possible. It's not sustainable. So we have to first focus on certain behaviors that we would address, but also understand that there's actually great value in allowing our players to experience the natural consequences of their behavior. There's a story I've told in the podcast before, so I apologize if you've heard it a few times, but back in seventh grade, uh, my mom explained to me that I had to get A's and B's if I wanted to play basketball. Like she said, I'm working hard to send you to a private school. You are capable of getting A's and B's. If you don't, you can't play, in, uh, play any sports. So first quarter of seventh grade, uh, I wasn't doing any of my Latin homework. I'd go home, I'd go out backyard, shoot baskets, play around. Wasn't really disciplined. My mom would remind me, hey, stay on top of your grades. Remember our rule. So she'd remind me of the rule, but she allowed me, she didn't say, hey, you need to go do your homework. She allowed me to choose to not do my homework. At the end of that first quarter, report cards come out and I have a big fat F in Latin. And sure enough, my mom enforced that standard and I didn't get to go out for basketball until I brought my grade up. Now, while she had what is called a logical consequence at the end of that for failing to meet the grade standard that she had set, she initially allowed me to experience the natural consequences of failing to do my homework and get an F, which I think I've, as a teacher, I've seen a lot of parents that aren't allowing their kids to experience that type of natural consequence, but experiencing natural consequences, honestly, was one of the most profound teaching moments in my life. And as coaches, I think we need to try to find areas of our program where we're not always going to step in. We're going to allow our players to maybe experience some of those natural consequences so that we can sit back, not to say, hey, I got you, I told you so, but to kind of walk through and explore those natural consequences and focus on some solutions. Well, JP, your story reminds me of a similar story from the book, The Gift of Failure by Jessica Leahy. And she talks in the book about kind of the first time in her family, they had an intervention to take on the sense of entitlement that she felt was growing with her kids. And, and she tells this story of explaining to them that they were going to be responsible for their grades and for their assignments and how one day, I think it was her 12-year-old, ran off to the bus and she saw on the coffee table in the living room the assignment that he'd worked on the night before that she knew was due that day. And she knew that if he didn't turn it in, that there was going to be a consequence and a penalty on his grade. And prior to thinking about the role of natural consequences and her role as a parent, she would have picked it up and ran to the school and gave it to the office so it could be turned in that day. But on this particular day, as she's trying to help the, her son discover the importance of responsibility, she looked at that assignment and said, it's not my job, shrugged her shoulders and went off to work. And again, her son kind of faced the same consequence that you did. Now, I think of another story with Phil Jackson in one of his books when he was trying to get Michael Jordan to embrace the value of the triangle offense, which Jordan would often call the equal opportunity offense, you know, and would would buck against it because 
he didn't trust his teammates to be able to score as efficiently as he could score individually. But Phil knew that there was no way that Jordan could sustain the scoring pace necessary for the Bulls to win games over 48 minutes every night, 82 games in the regular season and the playoffs. The load had to be shared. And so he tells this story in the book where Tex Winter, who was the original kind of designer of the of the triangle offense and one of the assistants for the Bulls, is sitting on the bench next to Phil and Jordan's just going off script and trying to take over the game in the middle of the second quarter. And Winter leans over and he says, he is killing us out there. You've got to get him out. And Phil just turns to him and says, just let him die, you know, and kind of leans back, lets it go. Jordan gets runs out of gas. They lose the game, but he wanted it to be a lesson and not just a lesson where he could come back and say, see, I told you so. But now it's a lesson that prompts a conversation. Why didn't that work? And I think too often as coaches, you know, we're afraid to be able to allow our players or our teams to experience some failure to create a little bit more validity to the conversation that we want to have about their execution or their effort, their preparation or whatever it might be, where they're never really going to understand until they experience a way that doesn't work. And, and that can be a hard place for coaches to give them the latitude and enough rope to fail in order to draw out what's best and what they can learn from that experience. Yeah. And sometimes these natural consequences, they don't even have to be like big things. They could be small things. I remember I spent you know years picking up jerseys in the locker room and putting them in the washing machine after practice. And it, finally, I said, I'm done with it. I told the players, listen, if you don't get your jersey into the washing machine before I leave, it's just not going to get washed. And so every time I'd leave the gym, I'd turn on the washer and put the detergent in, I'd shut it, and I would head out the door. I'd see a few jerseys laying on the ground, decide not to do anything finally about it. Next day, I still remember one player came and said, coach, you didn't wash my jersey. I said, it's not my job. And what did he have to do? He had to wear a sweaty, stinky jersey all practice and he got through it. But the rest of the year, we didn't have any players leave their jersey on the floor. I like that example, JP, because in a sense, it, it, it demonstrates the balance between defining the boundary. Here's where the consequence is going to take place if your jersey's not in the washing machine, but allowing the player the freedom to make that decision for themselves and then enforcing the boundary, right? You didn't do the job for them. And I think that's in a sense, you know, every situation is different. Every team is different, but those are the kinds of things that we're trying to weigh a little bit when we're making these decisions. You know, I think another thing we've talked a lot about on the podcast is the value of restorative discipline or restorative consequences where rather than just use a punishment and say, you know, if you do this X, Y, Z happens to you, We've tried to encourage coaches to be creative in ways that when they are disciplining a player and they are thinking of a consequence, they're doing it not only to protect the culture, but also to restore that person's value or that person's belonging in the group if they violated one of the team's norms. But I think sometimes even that can be seen as being too permissive. And that's because we often expect there to be a penalty. Like we want people to pay the price for their behavior. Uh, some great examples of, of restorative consequences. Just this last season, I had a coach that was working with mentorship program who had an assistant coach and a player get into it during a game. That assistant coach wanted justice. He wanted that player to run until he dropped the next day. But instead, it, the coach was creative and came up with a solution, which was they would go out to lunch together. They'd go grab lunch together and they would reconnect. 
Now, some people might sit back and say, well, that's not a consequence, right? They're, he's not paying the price for his you know, talking back to the coach and, and, and being disrespectful. He needs to pay a price, but that doesn't fix the real problem. So they focused on a solution, which was there was a rupture in the relationship and the player and the coach needed to spend some time to mend that, that bridge. Another tactic, JP, that we've talked a lot about on the podcast and work with the coaches in our mentorship program on is that the idea of progressive consequences. And if we could go back to your example of your mother, you know, she kind of set one clear standard. You have to have an A or an a B, but at the end of the quarter, you know, giving you nine weeks to kind of figure that out. And then there was a huge consequence if you weren't able to, you know, meet that standard. I think other parents, other coaches might think, well, what about having checkpoints along the way? You know, could you use a similar approach? Here's the expectation. Here's the consequence if it's not met and then give the student or give the player the freedom to do whatever they need to do in order to meet that standard. You know, could you say every other Friday we're going to do a grade check? And if you don't have A's and B's, then the following week you don't get to play with your friends after school as a as a consequence that is less severe, but maybe maybe checkpoints that happen more frequently. And I think there are ways that we've talked about doing that with teams as well. Now, at the end of the day, whether you're using progressive consequences, restorative consequences, or you're exploring the natural consequences, there needs to be accountability within a program. We need to hold our players to a standard, actually not just hold them to a standard, we need to continuously be trying to raise the standards in our program. So then the question is, well, where do we focus? Where do we focus our attention? Which, which areas, which behaviors? And I would encourage coaches to think about this in two ways. One is that you've got to find some non-negotiables. Like what are like two, three really important things for you as a coach that you need within the environment for you to effectively lead your team? And so for me, my non-negotiables are, I need players on time. I need players to listen. And I need players to not complain. Because if we have those three things, if people show up late or if people are complaining or they're not listening, it's going to really be disruptive to the environment and I'm not going to be effective as a coach. The players and the program are not going to be effective uh, within that practice to be able to be engaged and be at their best and learn. So you need to know your non-negotiables. Once again, it's a small list. It's not 10, 10 different items there. We try to really focus on two, three, or four things. The next area that I really try to encourage coaches to work with their teams are is to set some team standards. And these are not, once again, a huge list of 10, 20 different things really try to focus on five things, five areas of relevant behaviors, you know, that are relevant to areas that they maybe struggle as a team that they need to focus on if they want to achieve their goals that season. And so by having the players kind of establish some team standards, they're able to focus themselves and agree upon, hey, these are areas, these are areas we want to be held accountable to. And you can even have that conversation around how they could be held accountable. What will be the consequences of failing to meet those standards. And so if you just have those things in place, you've kind of started your season with some guidance on, hey, these are the areas that we're really going to try to move the needle within our program when it comes to the standards and the behaviors. And this leaves you, the coach, not trying to have to enforce every single behavior or thing that doesn't go right in practice or in games or wherever. And I think what's exciting about having those conversations early in the season is that as players demonstrate that they can be responsible for their effort or their unity or for the locker room, whatever it might be, that as a coach, you can begin to entrust them with more freedom and more responsibility. 
if you read anything in the parenting literature, you know, a lot of times you'll come across an analogy that, you know, our kids are allowed to play freely in the living room when they demonstrate they can't hurt themselves. And then we let them play in the house and then they can go outside and play in the yard. But when they're in the yard, even there, there's certain areas that they shouldn't get into. For example, if our kids start running around through my wife's flower beds, I'm going to have less kids at the end of the day. That's what's going to happen. And in a sense, you know, what we're doing is we're providing the boundaries. you got to stay in the yard and the non-negotiables. You can do whatever you want when you're out there, but don't run through the flower beds. Don't kick the ball in the flower bed. Don't make the dogs go in the flower bed. You know, and it's really what you're describing here is the combination of agreed upon boundaries with a few non-negotiables in that area and then allowing your team the freedom to explore and to play and to learn in that environment. Now, I want to kind of tie back what we're talking about here to an earlier point, which was that fear of the loss of relationship or like damage to the relationship where, you know, the player or players, you know, kind of disconnect from us because we hold them to a standard. And I think if we are establishing standards up front, team standards, non-negotiables, then the player is much less likely to respond in a negative way if they've had input into the standards because they understand the very purpose and why they're so beneficial. Now, there's no guarantees in that, but I think it's important to know that if we really want to truly have meaningful relationships with our players, that we have to hold them to a standard. If we don't hold them to a standard, if we don't challenge them on certain behaviors that are harmful to them and other people in the team, then honestly, those relationships will only go so far. Well, and there's one other thing I'd add to that too, JP, is that it doesn't have to be framed in the sense of it's the standard or the relationship. Oftentimes, the, though those conversations can be difficult, they can enhance the relationship with that player as you're walking with them through whatever the situation or the decisions that they've made that have kind of put them in that place. And when done correctly, and again, Dr. Jane Nelson talked about this on the podcast the last couple of weeks about the idea of firmness, that's the role of the coach, but walking with them in kindness, right, to support the human being. And I think that that can be an opportunity to grow the relationship, although it may not be comfortable and certainly is going to require some emotional energy and some time and some investment in being able to navigate it successfully. At the end of the day, JP, when we look at the issue of discipline, whether it's when and how to use threat and punishment and consequence, or it's how much freedom do I give to our players? This is one of the hardest parts of coaching. I don't, I don't care how long you've been doing it, I don't care how great your culture is. It's one of the most challenging because in so many ways, every situation is unique. Every player is different. Relationship with every player is different. The parent dynamic is different. The administration dynamic is different. There's all these different variables that have to go into our calculus when we're trying to figure out when to confront, when to hold a standard, when to let something slide and how to navigate your team through those challenges. I think what we want to leave coaches with here this week is it's worth your energy and your time and your investment to, to bring everybody to the table and to have the conversations that you described, JP, with your team and with your coaching staff. And the goal is not so that players can do whatever they want or that they'll always do whatever you want, but it's finding that common place where this is what we want this is who we want to be. And these are the consequences we want to be held accountable to so that we can become that team. I can become that person. I can even become that coach. And quite frankly, being on the journey of being a transformational coach is choosing to wrestle with all of those things for the betterment of your team. 
All right, now if you've enjoyed the last few episodes on discipline, first off, please, please share them. Send them to friends and peers, share them to social media, help support the podcast and spread this message. That'd be awfully nice. But also, if you found these episodes valuable and wanna learn a little bit more about what I call transformational discipline, check out the free PDF toolkit by subscribing to the TOC Culture Consulting Newsletter. Oh, and check out my book, Calling Up. I've got a lot of examples of what transformational discipline looks like, um, and that's all in the book as well. Thank you for listening in.